Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road Church in Guildford, UK. Thank you for joining us on the journey, wherever you are in the world. You can find out more about who we are and what we're up to at EmmausRoad.com. Now, our speaker today uh, is one of my dearest friends, um, Daniel Grothy uh, has been here a few times before, and whenever he speaks, it's phenomenal. Uh, Daniel is uh, from Colorado Springs. He's one of the pastors of New Life Church in Colorado Springs, massive, massive church there. Uh, he and I have been friends for about 16 years, I think it is, um, and uh, he's married to, to Lisa, has three kids, Lillian, Wilson, and Wakeley. And uh, he's like, their family are about as sporting as the Kuzaks, if that means anything to you. They're just like sportastic. And uh, uh, he's a phenomenal drummer. Uh, in fact, I think when I first met Daniel, he was just part of a drum troupe, as if that was a normal thing to be part of. Uh, and uh, I think the thing with Daniel is uh, he's a brilliant Bible teacher, but also he's probably one of the finest pastors I've met anywhere in the world. Uh, he loves people deeply. There's no pretense to it. He just deeply, deeply cares about the church and about the individual, a sheep within the flock, and I love him dearly. So, um, Daniel, come on up. And um, just as he comes up, we want to be really open to the Holy Spirit in this church, don't we? You know, to the interruptions of the Spirit. Whatever the Spirit says, we want to be obedient. And uh, so Daniel had prepared a message to share with us. And uh, Daniel is staying with uh, James and Julia Thomas right now. Where are you, James and Julia? Yes. Now, amazingly, James is not just a, a remarkable sort of freedom fighter and businessman. He's also a deeply prophetic man. And last night, James received a dream from the Lord about a change of direction for Daniel's talk. James, just come and, sh come and share with us. Come on, James. James. Who wants to hear the prophetic word that James Thomas... James, so... And I'm just going to ask the church to weigh James's word. The Bible says that we should weigh prophecies. And if we find it wanting, that's fine, James. It's okay. But if, if not, and, and that will help direct Daniel's message. Come on, James. Come on, James. I'll pass it on. I'll pass no, come, come on, James. We're not used to James being shy, are we? So James received a dream from uh, uh, the spirit of some variety last night. And... Uh, James, well, just share with us what you, what you shared with Daniel over breakfast that you sensed was the direction for his talk this morning. I'm going to kill you for this. <laughs> Both of you. No, it was a joke. I just suggested he talk about the abolition of the monarchy. <laughs> okay. I was joking. <laughs> okay, so uh, um, who, who thinks we should uh, spend the next half hour on that? I'm so sorry, James. Very, very few uh, Republican voices in, in, in the crowd today. Daniel, you're off the hook. So ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Daniel Grothy. Thank you, Pete. James, we, we had breakfast this morning, and James just so seriously said, I just feel like the Lord has given me a word, and I'm sitting on the edge of my seat, like ready to take a direction change in the sermon. So anyway, he had me laughing early this morning. Emmaus, it is good to be with you. I feel like if my ancestors had not rebelled so long ago and left, I would have been born in Guildford. Uh, I just feel like this is home. 
Under the queen. That's right. Under her rule. Uh, long live. Um, yeah, we got our own stuff to sort out in America, so I am not coming over here to throw stones, just so you know that. Uh, I've got nothing to say about that. Um, to be here in this place is uh, such a gift, and my kids, like Pete said, they're 10, Lillian's 10, Wilson's 8, and Wakely, my boy, is 5. And they, I have a sabbatical coming up in 2019, and we're going to try to come spend a month here and come over here. And so my kids, all they can talk about is England. And so you're going to England, and are you going to meet the queen? And are you going to stay at her palace? And, and so they're so excited. So I just want you to know that uh, you're in our heart and you're in our conversation. We love these people. Pete and Sammy are two of the finest. I go, I go around, and, and so maybe you take it for granted, but I go around the world, and I just want you to know what you have here in this team is exceptional. You guys are blessed. Can we give it up for Pete and Sammy real quick? Bill and Nikki and uh, Adam and Hannah and James and Julia, I feel like we're with family here. Uh, so thank you for having me today. Let's get ready to pray. What I'm going to do is read Romans 18, 8, 18 through 30, and then I'll pray and ask the Spirit to speak. Is that okay with you? Uh, Romans 8, 18 through 30, it's going to be here on the screen. Let me read this for you. It says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation, say eager expectation, for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated one day from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Look at that image that Paul is using, that creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time, and not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship to daughtership, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. And who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Paul goes on to say, in the same way the Spirit helps us, say the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified... He also glorified. Let's pray. Father, we open the first page of Scripture, and we see that it all starts with your word. In the beginning, God said. We go to the last page of Scripture. We've just read it, Revelation 21, and God said, Behold, I make all things new. And what we're asking today is that your voice would thunder in this place. 
Scripture says that the hills melt like wax at the presence of the Lord. And so, Lord, we, we pray that everything would bow down before you today. Everything in this place, everything in our hearts, every, every bit of pride and every, every valley that is low, we pray that you would lift it up and make the rough places smooth and the crooked places straight. By your word, we pray you'd put us together today. And so we invite you, Spirit of the living God, to brood over us and to speak, let there be, and there was. We pray, may the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Romans chapter 8 is probably the great Mount Everest in Pauline theology. It's this amazing picture that Paul creates for us. And at the beginning of Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, we we begin to see the identity of the believer has now shifted. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. Paul is saying what's gone before all the sin and all the death for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But there's this great pivot in Romans chapter 8 where Paul says the identity of the believer has now shifted. We are sons and we are daughters and there is no condemnation and we have power to, to overcome sin. The spirits at work in us causing life to bubble up from the very depths. Something has changed, he's saying in part one of Romans chapter eight. But part two, he says, so let me now tell you about your glorious future. So the identity of the believer has shifted and let me tell you about what is coming in the glorious future, when the eschaton, when God's good future comes rushing at us to make all things new, let me tell you what's coming. But Paul, today what I wanna talk about is life in the middle. We've got this new identity as sons and daughters, and we've got this glorious future coming. But Paul here in Romans 8, 18 through 30, begins to talk about what it's like in the middle. He gives us sort of a state of the union address. Why does he tell us about our glorious future? Because he wants us to have hope to endure life in the middle. He gives us the creational situation. He, he tells us about suffering and travail in the middle. And I want to show you what the creational situation looks like. It looks like the creation was subjected to futility. He says that creation is in bondage to decay. He talks about the groaning as in the pains of childbirth. We see this with famine in Africa. We see this with the tectonic shifting underneath the earth and where there's, there's earthquakes and there's uh, stuff, sweet, you know, the land getting overtaken by water. We've just seen this in the United States and these great hurricanes and destruction and pain. We see it in these despotic rulers rising up and marching across the, the nations to destroy The creation is groaning. Creation is saying, have mercy, Lord. Creation is groaning, saying, would you bring us into that glorious future finally? God, creation is living in the groan. He talks about not not only the creational situation, but the creaturely situation, the human situation. And he says that we ourselves as human beings, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption. Have you ever been in a situation where you didn't know what to say? All you could do is just go, Have you ever been in a hospital room unexpectedly? 
Have you ever been on a front row at a funeral? Normally, we we like sitting in the back at funerals. We can support the family. But have you ever been on the front row? And there are no words. There's just these, these wordless sighs that come out of us. That the creatures groan as we eagerly await. The redemption of our bodies, he talks about. As you get older, as life happens, maybe not even, maybe some of you were born and, and, and you've got difficulty in your body and you live with this constant sense of pain and grief and, and, and your life feels like it. there's a regular wordless sigh. Have mercy, oh God. Deliver me from this. And Paul says, and we don't know what to pray for. Have you ever been in that spot where you don't know what to pray for? Have you ever been speechless? I was in Lebanon earlier this year working with Syrian and Iraqi refugees in the Bekaa Valley. And talk about having nothing to say except a come Holy Spirit. The wordless sighs, the groans. Paul uses this to sum up what creation and creatures are going through this great word in the Greek, apokaradakia. <laughs> say that five times, I'll give you a dollar. <laughs> apokaradakia. This is the word that he uses, which means anxious and persistent expectation. But the word picture that is carried with this word, apokaradakia, there, there's a better image for you. The word means to crane one's neck. To be looking around the corner waiting for good news to come. Is it coming yet? To crane one's neck, to long, to stretch out, to reach out with all of your heart and with all of your emotion, with all of your expectation. Is it time yet? God, apokaradakia, to crane one's neck. And Paul says that all of creation is craning its neck looking for God's glorious future. So that's a glimpse of where we are. And in Romans chapter 8, I want to suggest to you that Paul gives us three things. He's offering us three things in this latter part of Romans chapter 8. And here's the first thing that he's offering us. He's offering us an invitation into the groan. It's an invitation into the groan. This, this concept is foreign to many of us in the first world West because it's easy to hear a gospel of all I do is win in the first world West. When we can pay our bills, we know where our mortgage is coming from next month, and we seem to be okay, and so we trick ourselves into thinking that we don't really need God. But Paul is saying, no, I want to invite you into this groan. I want to invite you to become missionaries that move into the Middle East and to leverage your strength for the service of the other. I want to invite you in to caring. I want to invite you into the wordless size. I want to invite you into that hospital ministry. I want to invite you into prison ministry. There's an invitation into the groan for the people of God. I was recently having lunch with a man who was obviously sick. He was overcoming something. He could barely talk, and he sounded like trash. He just... And so I sat down and said, oh, man, I'm, I'm so sorry that you're sick. And he said, I'm not sick. And I said, well, really, it kind of sounds like you are. And he says, I don't get sick. And he had this, like, theology. Uh, I started probing. He had this theology that said, I don't ever get sick. Like I'm, and he's obviously sick while he's talking to me. But he refused. He's got this all I do is win theology that says to, to, to be in Christ is to never have pain, to never have trouble, to never have hardship. And Paul says, no, there's an invitation into the groan. In Romans chapter 8, verse 16, he says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified 
with him. I remember Philippians 3, memorizing that in Christian school as a kid, 310 and the very beginning of it. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And typically we put a period there, but there's no period there. I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead, provided that we suffer with him, provided that we are the people who are willing to enter into the groan of creation, into the groan of God's very heart. This is what it means to be the people of God. And Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 goes on this rant And he starts by saying, behold, now is the favorable time. Like we hear this and we go, finally, good news. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And he says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And he says, by great endurance in afflictions in hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, and kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine in love. And he goes on to say that we are, we are as unknown and yet we're well known by God. We're treated as dying and yet behold we live and we're treated as punished and yet we're not killed. We're as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything invited into the groan. I remember being at New Life Church 10 years ago, almost, almost this week 10 years ago, and maybe some of you have heard snippets of this story, but I was standing at the end of our children's hallway after service, and uh, people were leaving, and thousands of people on our campus. It's a large church, and so it's kind of the end of the day. People are getting ready to go to lunch, and I'm standing at the il- end of our children's hallway, and all of a sudden I hear, bop, 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 bop. And a gunman had come on our campus and killed two girls in the parking lot and came in our church building with an automatic rifle and was just spraying bullets everywhere. He had a thousand rounds of ammo on him. And these are things that you don't ever expect to happen, let alone in church. And he ended up taking his life in our building that day as a security guard stopped him. And here we are as a church. We had just lost our senior pastor a year before to a moral failure. We finally get a new pastor. And on his 100th day working at our church, a double murder and a suicide in our building. And you know what I found in that invitation into the groan? Is that the Holy Spirit is very close. And our church was brought into the holiness of God again and into the fear of the Lord and into tenderness again. And through that long journey, years that it took, but God, has, God walked with us through the valley of the shadow of death and we found that he's there and, we, and somehow we were able to fear no evil. There's an invitation into the groan, but Paul goes a step further to say that the people of God carry an extra measure of the groan. There's just general groan in the world, but the people of God have been invited into an extra measure of the groan, and we are the ones who write mortgage checks for people who are in need, and we are the ones who go into prisons, and we are the ones that go into hospitals, and we are the ones that do work in India and in Africa fighting sex trafficking and fighting hunger and poverty. We are the ones who lay in bed at night going, have mercy, O Lord. We are the ones who wake up at three in the morning with the groan pangs of the Spirit saying, have mercy, and we we weep and we cry and sometimes we don't even know why it's because we've been invited into the groan this is what it means to be the people of God bear one another's burdens 
And so fulfill the law of Christ. And Jesus is the word made flesh dwelling among us. God who doesn't sprinkle salvation from the balcony of heaven, but who races into the mess and lives in the mess and takes on the very worst of the mess and brings salvation in it. And we are those people called by his name. That's what Paul first invites us into. And you go, holy smokes, is this going to (laughs) lift? Is this going to get better? The second thing that he tells us is that there's some consolation that we're not alone in it. So we've been given an invitation into the groan, but there's this consolation that we're not alone in the midst of it. He says in Romans 8, 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we ought to pray for as, as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We're not alone. There's consolation that never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. You're not out there by yourself. I'm with you. The question is, if there's consolation that we're not alone, we've got to ask, how does God's presence get mediated to us most often? How How do we receive that blessing of God's presence? And his strength. And I want to suggest to you that, that the most concentrated way his presence is mediate, mediated to us in the earth is through the life of the church, the people of God. And we live in a world, you and I, in the first world West, that, that doesn't really have any time for the church anymore. And there's, if there's salvation in Christ, it can be something that is just sort of me and Jesus. But I want to suggest to you that that is foreign to the biblical witness. That God's salvation is through his people. The, the, the saints of old, the theologians of the church of old said there's no salvation outside of the church. And that's not, they're just saying that God's salvation comes to us through people. And I remember about two years ago, I was actually about a year and a month ago, I, my grandfather had just died, Grandpa Dan. And he was 85 years old. He was Daniel Wilson, and I'm Daniel Wilson Grothy. And my first boy is named Wilson, so I love this guy, Grandpa Dan who passed away. And I flew out to Idaho, and I officiated his funeral on Saturday, and I left the funeral and raced straight to the airport and flew to Dallas, and I was speaking at a church. And I did four days of ministry there, and I was exhausted from the funeral, emotionally drained. I didn't get to grieve because I was working. And then I went to this church for four days, and then I came home and preached at my church, and I just kind of blown through the grief. And the following Monday, about 10 days later, I met uh, four other brothers of mine. We meet four times a year at a Catholic retreat center in Colorado Springs, and we get together and we pray. We've known each other 20 years, and so we do this retreat. So I got to the retreat, and I was just absolutely exhausted. I was missing my grandfather. I was grieving for my grandmother and for my mom. It's one thing to watch your parents grieve the loss of their parents. So anyway, life was just really stacking up on me and I was exhausted and I got to this place and they had a prayer labyrinth at the at the Catholic retreat center and if you've ever walked a prayer labyrinth it's this slow kind of meandering prayer walk and you walk and you end up going into the middle where there's this space and then you walk back out so we walked into the prayer labyrinth and I've got a picture here that I want to show you entered in here and we got to the middle where those rocks are and all five of us were sitting on the five boulders and we were talking and they said Daniel how are you doing? And they knew what was going on. 
And I said, I'm I'm just trying to be okay. I'm okay. And they could see right through it. And they said, well, we just want to lay hands on you. And so they started praying for me, and we were all sitting on the rocks, and all of a sudden, something inside of me broke open. And the well began to run again. And I started sobbing and heaving. And and I fell down on the ground in this gravel, and I'm laying there. You can see there in between the rocks are some two legs sticking out. That's me. And these men were laying their hands on me, and they prayed for me for 45 minutes. I'm on the ground in the middle of the prayer labyrinth, sobbing my eyes out, grieving the loss of my grandfather. And I've got four guys laying their hands on my chest and speaking life over me. And they, at the end of Amen, they said, we're just going to leave you. And they walked out, and I laid there for another hour. One of them took this picture. I ended up actually falling asleep toward the end because I was so exhausted. And I have this picture because this picture to me represents what life in the body of Christ should be like. That there's this consolation that we're not alone. God says to us, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. But, but the strange thing is I've never actually seen the Father with my own eyes. I've never seen Jesus with my own eyes. But do you know what I've seen? I saw four guys hovering over me, laying hands on me, speaking life and weeping. And, and, and you know what? I got up from this place and I was healed. I got up from this place and I could feel again. I got up from this place and I had joy again. I got up from this place and I knew deep down in my bones that I was not alone. And Paul says in Romans chapter 8, there's this consolation that you're not alone. You see, the church as the body of Christ is not a sentimental, poetic construction. The church is the very real way that Jesus wraps his arms around the world. Someone who can lay hands on you and speak life to you and feed you a meal in the comfort of their home and say to you, you are not alone. The church as the body of Christ. This is why we give. This is why we serve. This is why we have, uh, what are they called? Connect group collections? Collectives? Collectives. This is why we have small groups and we get together because we find that we're not alone. In a very lonely world, the church is the way we discover that God is with us. The third thing that I want to suggest Paul is offering us in Romans chapter 8 is assurance that we'll make it home. Assurance that we'll make it home. So he gives us this invitation into the groan, and that's daunting, but then we find that there's this consolation that we're not alone, and we receive that through the life of the church. But then he, he says, don't you worry, you're going to make it home. He gives us an assurance that we're going to make it home. Paul, how can you say that? We look at the world, and how can you say that, Paul? Well, Paul just knew how the Spirit of God works, and as you read the account of church history, you find story after story. The great North African St. Augustine, maybe the greatest theological mind in the last 1,700 years. We're all riding the wave of his work. And St. Augustine, before he was St. Augustine, he was, a, he was a promiscuous scoundrel. Like, filthy Not a great saint, not one who cared about God, not one who studied scripture. He was nasty. And you read in his confessions his own story of of living a life of promiscuity. But he tells the story of one day being caught off guard by the Spirit of God when he wasn't looking. And he, he, he says, late have I loved you. 
Late have I loved you in my life. Beauty so ancient, yet so new. And he says that you called and you shouted and you broke through my deafness and you flashed and you shone and you dispelled all my blindness and you breathed your fragrance on me. Isn't that the most beautiful God, he breathed his fragrance on a promiscuous scoundrel. And he said, and I drew in your breath and I kept on breathing and I've tasted and I've seen and now I want more because you breathed your fragrance on me. And God is the God who comes chasing after promiscuous scoundrels and turns them into St. Augustine's. Paul says there's an assurance that you're going to make it home. I remember this man back in Colorado, a dear friend of mine, and he, he had a pure heart. He loved the Lord, and he would come to church and help lead worship, and he'd study scripture. He was just like a saint, a great, great man of God. And then something, there was kind of a, an event in his life, one of those moments where he was caught off guard with the, the evil of the world, and his life started to unravel. And I remember watching this over the course of a couple years, this innocent and pure and gentle and fun to be around guy got really chippy and caustic and mean and, and, and difficult to be around. When you were around him, you didn't know if he was going to attack you. And, be, be, and, and then it just got, he just had this kind of Luciferian fall from grace. And he'd write about and just rail on the church, and he, you just couldn't be around him. And, and there was one Good Friday. I was preaching on Good Friday, and I couldn't get this guy off of my heart and talking about the death of Jesus. And I challenged our congregation on Holy Saturday. I said, tomorrow, I want to ask you to fast and pray, and I want you to think about a few people and write their names down that you want the Holy Spirit to just chase down and get. So Holy Saturday came, and Lisa and I had this chalkboard in our kitchen, and we wrote this guy's name, big letters across our chalkboard. And we spent that day saying, Jesus, go get him. Go get him. Go get him. And we moved houses and we took the chalkboard down and as these things happened, it ended up in our basement. We didn't hang it back up, but his name was still on the chalkboard. And I go in the basement, I go, oh, I see it. And I say, oh, Jesus, go get him. By your spirit, would you woo him with your love and would you breathe your fragrance on him and would you wake him up? And six years goes by. And every time I saw him, you could see that he was just bleeding out. Well, just recently, a long-time mutual friend of ours came, came into town. And we were talking, and all of a sudden he said, and did you hear about so-and-so? And I said, no. He goes, oh, yeah, he's, he's leading his Bible study every week, and he's coming to church, and he's helping lead on the prayer. Like, he's had this dramatic transformation. This guy who, who, was, who was in grace, who fell from grace and was six years away, and honestly, I would love to tell you I was a man of faith and just knew that he would come home, but I, I didn't. And, and yet my friend comes and tells me that this man, after a year, has been just wildly restored into the innocence and the joy, the life of the kingdom of God. This is the God who comes chasing us. This is the God who restores us. This is the God who gives us assurance that never will I leave you and never will I forsake you and I'm going to get you home in Romans 8.31. Look at this. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. 
Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Do you know that Jesus is praying for you right now? Like we, we, we see this on paper and we go, yeah, technically, yeah. Jesus is praying for us. Jesus is interceding for us right now. He goes on to say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long and we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Saints, I'm here to tell you that the enemy's attempt to destroy will not overcome God's determination to deliver. Assurance that you're going to make it home. When you read the scriptures, what you find is that Abraham was a liar, but God was for him. And Sarah laughed, but God was for her. And Elijah was a coward, but God was for him. And David was an adulterer and a murderer, but God was for him. Hannah was barren and could do nothing to save herself, but God was for her. And Mary was a single woman on the fringes of a patriarchal society, but God was for her. And Peter was a punk, but God was for him. And Paul was a murderer, but God was for him. And the woman with the issue of blood was broken, had nothing left, but God was for her. And St. Augustine was a promiscuous scoundrel, but God was for him. And church, I'm here to tell you today that God is for you. God is for you. God is for you. God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? Who can be against you? You know that Jesus is interceding for us right now. And saints, we're going to make it home. Today, we've been given an invitation into the groan to, to step into that place and to carry the world's burdens and to wash the feet of the world in prayer just like Jesus taught us. In John 13, we've been, we've been given consolation that we're not alone, that the Spirit intercedes within us. But we've been given assurance today that we're going to make it home. You're going to make it home if God is for you. Who can be against you? As I've been in prayer over this, time together for the, the last several weeks, I felt a couple burdens to put in front of you today. Maybe some of you have been off in the far country for some time. You've been off and maybe you've never had an interaction with God and you've just been living in the far country and, and you find yourself in here today and you, you may not even know why, but you're here. Maybe you had an interaction with God like my friend wandered off for six years in the wilderness and, and people looking on your story wondered if it, would ever, if, if it would ever recover. But today by the Spirit of God, you've heard the call from the far country. It says in Luke 15 that the prodigal came to his senses, that he woke up. In the pigsty, the Spirit got him and wore him down and he, he started his journey home. Maybe today you're in the far country and you're finding yourself on that journey home today. My question is, would you just say yes to Jesus? Would you give yourself wholly over to him? Would you cast yourself on the mercy of God? Would you take that step home, trusting that in, in taking one step, you'll see the Father running from the porch? Today is the day to come home from the far country and to be received in joy. The second burden that I felt 
was for some of you who are so tired from having lived in the groan. Years and years under the burden and under the weight of the groan. Maybe a child has been the prodigal, and it's meant that you've lived in the groan for years on end. Maybe an aging parent, and, and they don't have the money that they need, and you've had to take them in. It, whatever the situation is, maybe it's a physical ailment, but you know it. When you hear about the groan, you said, it sounds like my life. You're talking about my life. I just felt the Spirit prompt me to tell you to say that he's with you today, and today's going to be a day of supernatural undergirding. That today's a day I I was reading or thinking about 1 Kings 19. Elijah in 1 Kings 18 had just had this incredible moment where the priests of Baal, he went up on, called down fire, greatest moment in his ministry. Will you turn the page to chapter 19? And he runs from Jezebel, and he's scared. And he gets under a broom tree and he says, I'm so tired, God, just take my life. He literally asks God to take his life. And it says he falls asleep. And he wakes up and there's a cake of bread next to him and a jug of water. And God says, eat and drink. And today I just had the sense that many of you are tired and you're under the broom tree and you're saying, God, just whatever. And today God says, eat and drink, I'm with you. And so what I want to do is pray for you this morning. And I want us to quiet our hearts and to bow our heads and to put ourselves in the presence of the Lord and just with an openness. Would you maybe just cup your hands as a sign of saying, I I surrender and I'm willing to receive from you today. Father, you know us and you know our frame. You know our weakness. You know our need. And today for my friends at Emmaus, I want to ask that for the ones who are on that journey home from the far country, that you would do the same thing for them that you did for St. Augustine. That you'd breathe your fragrance on them today. That there would be that wind of the Spirit. That you would draw them in. That you would wake their hearts up. That you would cause them to be able to feel again that you would cause them to be able to cry again, that you would cause a tenderness to return to their hearts again. Ezekiel, the great prophet, said that in the the end when the Spirit is poured out, that God would take our hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh with new and right desires. I pray for that kind of an exchange today. And for you coming home today, I want you to hear The Father's welcome home. Welcome, my son, my daughter who was dead, is alive again. I want you to hear the the ruckus of the party being prepared. The fattened calf being killed and the robe on your back and the ring on your finger, the sandals on your feet and the kiss of the Father on your cheek today saying, Welcome home, daughter. Welcome home, son. I pray today as, as many come home, as, as others take a step back toward the Father, that there would be a welcome embrace today. And Lord, for my brothers and sisters who are so weary under the weight of the burden, For those who have lived in the groan year after year 
after year, I pray that like Moses, when he was getting ready to collapse in the battle, that Aaron and her came alongside and lifted his arms and that he was able to stand up under it. And today, by the Spirit of God, I proclaim to you, brothers and sisters, that you will stand up under it, that you will make it, that you will have all that you need that you will be strong today. I pray for a renewal today. I pray that laughter would return to your spirit today. I pray that delight and dance and song and childlikeness and playfulness and innocence would return to the weary traveler today. Spirit of the living God, would you give us what we need? And Lord, I thank you for this church, that this church is a church that knows what it is to step under the burden and to carry. Thank you for their willingness to do work all over the world. Thank you for their willingness to pray. And as a brother in Christ from a long ways away, but someone who feels like he's with family today, I pray over this church. May the Lord bless you and may he keep you and may he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his bright smiling countenance upon you today and grant you peace in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. I love you, Emmaus.